You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon. If there is a vague theme to this morning's show, then it is the outdoors, which is not a theme that crops up regularly in an art show, but today we're visiting climate change and plein air painting. In the second act of the show, artists Tracy Icorn, Janet Flett and Vicki Yulgen stop by to talk about the second annual Boone plein air event, which takes place next weekend. But first, we consider climate change, and specifically climate change theatre action a biennial initiative which comprises a series of worldwide readings and performances of short climate change plays presented in support of the United Nations Conference of the Parties. The hope of climate change theatre action is that it fosters non-partisan local and global conversations about climate change and encourages people to take action within their own communities. The Biennial Climate Change Theatre Action is now in its third iteration, with its 2017 event estimated to have reached 12,000 people in 23 countries through 140 events. And taking on this initiative in Columbia for the second time is the University of Missouri Theatre Department, which is dedicating their 17th annual Life and Literature Series to Climate Change Theatre Action. And here to tell us more about it is the Chair of the Theatre Department and the Creator and Director of its life and literature performance series, Dr. Heather Carver, who is here along with Andy Black, a playwright and doctoral student in theatre, who is also wearing the hat of associate producer for this year's Climate Change Theatre. Welcome to the show, Heather and Andy. It's great to be here. Thanks. Thank you. So with the recent United Nations Climate Change Summit and the high profile of Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg, conversations around climate change feel more pressing than ever. Yet I wonder whether in the Venn diagram of people who attend theatre shows at a university and climate change deniers, if there is anyone populating the intersection. So is this an exercise in preaching to the converted? And if so, is there any call to action? Well, first of all, excellent question, (laughs) of course. Well, the call to action is actually, people like to talk about, are you preaching to the choir or the converted? But we actually need to do more. We're beyond recycling our plastic cups. We're beyond not using plastic straws. This is serious, serious action. And part of it is making everyone aware that this isn't a partisan issue, that climate change is real, it is happening, and it is part of us and who we are. And so theater has this ability to bring a community together, and the community needs to see that this is pressing. There's probably nothing more pressing at this point than us trying to do what we can, but it means bigger pushes right? It means divesting in fossil fuels. It means a lot more than previously people might have thought, right? They take out the recycling, Columbia recycles a little more, they're done. But the answer is no. I have a comment I can tell a little story is that I'm my primary interest is not climate change. My primary interest is theater. 
So when Dr. Carver, I'm new to the school, so when Dr. Carver came to me and said, would you like to participate in this event? I said, yes, I was going to be a good team player and all that. I wasn't particularly passionate about the issue of climate change. I, in fact, I don't know, really know, didn't at that point in time know very much about it. And so what ha happened was, and I'm going to come out of the closet, I'm a progressive liberal. So I have a tendency to follow whatever the progressive liberal talking points are without actually thinking very much about them. And I have to say, I think being uninformed on any political position that you hold, you run the risk of becoming an ideologue. So I agreed to work on this theater initiative with a climate change focus. And I thought to myself, well, if I'm going to do my job and I'm going to really do this with integrity, it's up to me to educate myself a little bit more on the issue because I was basically supporting the position without actually having very much data. So what happened was I started listening and exploring the issue myself. And I started listening to, you know, TED Talks, YouTube. There's a lot of information available on the Internet for people that want to educate themselves about climate change. And now I feel like I have a point of view which is supported by data. And I really think that it's important that we as artists in particular come to our conclusions as a result of some sort of research and that we just don't follow the herd. So when you were talking about that Venn diagram, the part in the middle, I have a, a belief that there are a lot of theater people who are artists who really do not know that much about climate change. So in terms of preaching to the choir, I feel like I've already been preached to and my consciousness has already been raised just as a result of my participation in this event so far. And we have 40 uh, people who are engaged in this project among the actors, the directors, and every single one of those individuals, I do believe, is going to have their consciousness raised in the same way that I did. So it's an educative event for the people who are participating. And I don't know if this is part of the Climate Change Theater Action Group's strategy for radicalizing the artists around the world, but I think a lot of people are engaging in this activity because they're interested in the art. And then what's going to happen is their social consciousness is going to be dragged into the activity with them. And I think fundamentally that's exactly what needs to happen uh, in order for us to move the needle on this very, very important uh, political issue. Absolutely. The citizen artist is integral. Often we are asked to just be one thing or another. And I think what Andy's pointing out is we are part of this community. We are citizens of the world and we are part of doing what we can to be engaged continually. One of the things that was really interesting to me is I did listen to a TED Talk on this topic. And there are one thing that I learned is that there are many, 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 many different opinions that people have about. I think a lot of people agree that there's a problem with what's happening with our climate. But people have very, very different ideas about what to do about it. So I think even among the people that are in favor of taking action, there's not a clear consensus on what action needs to be taken. And I think this is a place where we liberals, if I can use that term, need to educate ourselves so that we're in a position to smartly advocate for the courses of action that we believe are going to do the most good and that we not actually invest in actions that are 
perhaps um, sh showy, but aren't going to accomplish very much. So I think that's a place where um, every I think there's a lot of work for all of us to do in terms of educating ourselves about the issue so that we can more smartly advocate for our point of view and um, move the conversation down the road in the right direction. I mean, the, the real answer, unfortunately, is that we are we are all going to have to move out of our comfort zone hugely to make any difference at this point that we're, as you said, we're way beyond plastic straws and recyclable cups. In 2005, Bill McKibben, who founded 350.org, he wrote an article titled What the World Needs Now is Art, Sweet Art, in which he asked where was the art that would help us digest the sense and the urgency of climate change. Yet despite climate change, there's now this opera about climate change. It's in hip-hop poetry slams, it's in art galleries, it's in off-Broadway houses and regional theatres. But we have still not reached that critical mass of anger and fear that the AIDS activists created in the 90s and the, and the early 2000s that did affect political change. We're still all swishing around trying to work out how we can make change ourselves in our, in our own small way. So, Andy, as a playwright, you describe yourself or your archetype as the magician. So how do you feel you can affect change through your art, through your magic? Explain that archetype of magician. Well, let's see here. Uh, what do I want to say about that? You know, the um, there's a, a movie called Stardust Memories, which was uh, directed by Woody Allen, uh, who's long been one of my favorites, although I have to admit more recently his uh, reputation has been somewhat tarnished by certain revelations. I still respect him as an artist. And uh, in the movie Stardust Memories, he is confronted with a group of aliens from another planet who have, are greatly intelligent and they can answer any question. And so what Woody Allen asks, he's a com he plays a comedian in the movie, as he often does in his movies. And they ask, he asks the question, well, how can I make the world a better place to live in? Should I quit being a comedian? Should I become a missionary? And these smart aliens say, no, you shouldn't. Let's face it, you're not the missionary type. You're a comedian. If you want to make the world a better place, tell funnier jokes, right? And I really do think that um, in terms of changing the world, the place that we always have to start from is the place where we find ourselves. And I'm not a scientist, right? I'm, uh, so there's a, a limit. I'm going to be able to impact those kinds of issues in a limited way. Uh, what I think for myself is that I'm an artist. And the reason that I'm here at Mizzou is so that I can develop my capability as a teacher and as an artist. And I believe that as I do that as my primary focus, I, I can't lose focus on that. That's what I'm really here for. So I think that, and I really do think that the primary um, challenge for us all is to take responsibility for the part of our path that we find ourselves on and see where that leads us. Now, in this case, fortunately, what my path has led me to is this event about climate change. And I feel that I've been able to use my special magic, as you call it, to help create a spirit among the cast and the crew where there's a lot of excitement. Uh, at the beginning of the process, we went around the, the group and talked about what people wanted to learn as a result of being engaged in this activity. And, and one of the things I was struck by was that most people, they didn't want to learn about, a couple of them wanted to learn about acting. And I will say we have some people in the cast who've never actually been on a stage before, which is really exciting for them. Most of the people who were in the crew actually wanted to learn about climate change. 
right? So by helping to create an environment where the people on our cast and crew get to dialogue about why they're there and what they're up to, then I feel that I have been furthering the conversation uh, in an important way. And what that has looked like for me is just taking responsibility for the piece of the path that I'm on and what's right in front of me, write better plays, learn how to be a better playwright, learn how to be a better teacher, and then let those activities direct me in the ancillary activities that are going to make a difference for the uh, world around me. So does that make sense? Absolutely. Now, you you have a play in the schedule so I there do. are there are many short plays which we'll come to in a minute but you do have one which is called students at life and lit That's part right. one two and three which doesn't immediately sound particularly climate focused so tell us a little bit more about, <laughs> about it what is what is students at life and well lit when, about? You, when you one of the things that was important is that we have an evening which is comprised of probably of what maybe about 12 or 14 different yes works. We have poems. We have a poem by Walt Whitman, which is going to be recited by three actors. We have comedies. We have things that are more expressionistic. We have a wonderful, wonderful performance piece by Dr. Sherry Sampson, which is a little bit more of a metaphoric approach to her experience of climate change. So we have a wide variety of different kinds of of segments in the evening. And the challenge in producing something like this is to help the audience understand that it all fits together. So what I did for the purposes of this production was I created what's what sometimes in our uh, field is called a frame story. So at the beginning of the evening, we have two students wandering in who are actually actors and they are going to be discussing the issue of climate change. Well, one of them is excited to be exploring the issue. The other, not so much. It's an assignment. He has to be there. And so over the course of the evening, the design is for us to periodically check back in with these students at Life and Lit to see how they are reacting to what they are seeing on the stage. So the, the journey of these two students should be reflecting the journey of the audience. And at the same time, it helps to create a framework in which the evening takes place. There are many things that we do to make it all fit together, but that's one of the elements that is going to help the uh, evening feel like a coherent whole. Because it's important for us that the audience feels like everything in the evening fits together, that it's not just loose objects that we pulled out of a drawer, but they're all integrated and telling a complete overall story that the audience gets to experience firsthand. So that was my contribution, was to write that framing story about those two students, which we call Studying Climate Change. So your play kind of runs through the whole play. That's we right. dip in and out of it from start to yeah, finish. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Often when I go and see climate change issues, whether it's a film or a theater piece or an art show, you leave feeling so despondent. Like, what can I possibly do? So I wonder, you know, as, as playwrights, you can play with fear or with guilt or with hope. How are we going to feel at the end of the evening? And is there a call to action? Is there somebody that's going to come and talk to us at the end and say, here's what you can do so that we leave feeling like there is hope? Well, the prompt for the 2019 Climate Change Theater Action uh, that they sent out to the playwrights uh, globally was the notion of lighting the way. And so lighting the way gives lots of lots of ability to go different places. And one of the things about an evening like this is we really don't want people thinking that they're coming. Um, back in my day, we used to have something we called the after school special. <laughs> I don't 
know if anyone else out there remembers that, but okay, thanks, Mike. Um, but they used to have these in which you knew immediately what the topic was and you were, I don't know, what's a good word, schooled on it, right? And that's what um, you came out of it and you were supposed to be beforehand uneducated, afterwards educated. That kind of approach might, um, might have worked back in the day or might not have, but we really know that people need to own their own experiences. They need to think about who they are, what they feel, what they believe, and where can they go with the work. And so this is an evening that is not similar, as Andy pointed out, and all the pieces are different. They are speaking in different ways. Um, Some people are going to be pushed emotionally in ways they might not have thought about ahead of time. Some people are going to laugh more than they thought, right? Maybe, you know, the student he has created that didn't want to go or something like that is going to be pushed into something they haven't thought of. I think that what's important is that we're all realizing that our connections with the environment are real no matter where people are placed. And I'm glad that Andy brought up Cherie Sampson's work. She is a performance artist who is also internationally known. Um, and she's and one of our professors. She's a zoo. professor in the School of Visual Studies. And her work is phenomenal. We are only um, doing a short piece of a longer project that she's been working on. Since her experience having breast cancer, she has put together this incredible series of visual images and her own body work and photography and um, she's going to be presenting this as a part of the evening and a person at first if they're theme oriented might say what is this piece why does this have to do with anything on climate change well as a breast cancer survivor it's everything Our health is absolutely a part of everything that's happening in the environment, what we're doing to the environment and what it's doing to us. And so, no, we don't have somebody coming out, you know, in a um, school teacher fashion with a pointer shaking their fist at the audience. But we're offering all these stories. This is deeply personal work that she's doing and you can't help but start to invest in ways of understanding and so we do offer this plethora of voices throughout the piece now we aren't shying away from action either and so at the end of um, the performance we are going to have we've invited our friends our scientist friends professors um, to come and talk we've invited the students who who are the climate leaders at Mizzou to talk. We will be having that discussion at the end for audience members that want to partake in what can they do, asking questions, you know, having more of a conversation past the artistic expression. Uh, So that will be offered. But really, it is a means of what Climate Theater Action wants, is that the community coming together for its own solutions. The Climate Change Theatre Action is a global collaboration between three organisations, the Arctic Cycle, the Centre for Sustainable Practice in the Arts and Theatre Without Borders. And like you said, this year's theme is Lighting the Way, which looks to highlight the work of our various climate heroes. And they started in January this year with 50 playwrights representing every continent, as well as several indigenous nations. And they were commissioned to write five-minute plays. 
And in April, these plays were made available to collaborators around the world. And the MU production makes use of, I think, eight of those plays out of the 50. Plus then, like you say, you have works by our own students here at Mizzou. You have one community person who's written a poem. Yes. And how did you, when you were looking at those 50 plays, how did you choose the eight that you did choose? Well, uh, you want to speak well, to that? Well, yeah, well the, I mean, from a process perspective, we uh, all of the 50 plays were in a, in a Dropbox file. <laughs> uh, we sent the file. We have six directors. So we sent the link to the file to the six directors, and we allowed them to identify the two or three that they were the most interested in. And so I'm very happy, we were very happy to say that nobody picked the same play, uh, which is a testament to the diversity of thinking and artistic expressions that exist among the six directors. And so when I read them all, I liked all of them. And what I think we were able to do was curate them into a flow for the evening that's going to provide an incredible amount of variety and fun for the audience. We have some that are satirical. We have some that are very funny. We have some that are more expressionistic. We have some that are a little bit more uh, direct in the way they deal with the issue. So uh, we were able to curate what I think was a really, really wonderful evening just based uh, and driven largely by the artistic sensibilities of the six directors who are participating in the evening. And I think it's exciting too that looking at the playwrights who wrote the plays you've chosen, you have a couple of American playwrights, but you also have playwrights from Ethiopia, New Zealand, Kenya, Iraq, and Bengal and, and India. So, I mean, it's awesome that you have such a wide range and that just happened that way. That's right, that's right. Absolutely. And, and our, and our directors a... themselves are from a diverse backgrounds as well. We have an international director. That's um, right. That's we, right that's we, we have students um, that are participating from a variety of ethnic backgrounds. It's, you know, the organic approach is the one that makes the most sense because it is what was speaking to them, right? What were they wanting to share? And so, having all of this variety of voices lends itself to the evening as it's always been intended anyway. With the Life and Literature Performance Series, that's sort of what we've always done. We have a playwright from St. Louis, right? Absolutely. Joan Lipkin. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, Very much an activist known for her work um, as a playwright. And her play is called About That Chocolate Bar. Tell us a little bit about Joan's play. Well, that's one of the more, I'd say that's one of the ones that's a little more comical in its approach, but a uh, the, the setup is that a woman who is about to eat a simple chocolate bar is confronted by the spirit of the Amazon uh, in an expressionistic style. And there's a whole conversation about how sometimes even the simplest acts, you know, even the products that we consume can have implications for global health beyond what we um, experience and sort of the, the dramatic question in the this particular segment is what is the woman going to do with her chocolate bar as a result of having been confronted by the spirit of the Amazon and I will say that the actor who's playing the spirit of the Amazon is one of the ones who is this is her first time on any stage so she and there's something really fun about the fresh excited energy that these young actors bring to these roles in their commitment to bring the best of who they are. So I think with that particular segment, the um, audience is going to have a really good time and they're going to be able to connect in a very visceral way with the two actors because they're so excited about playing those two different characters in that segment. 
funnily enough, I was eating an organic chocolate bar the other day <laughs> and my husband was reading the back of it and he said, you know, they're really proud of the fact of how far afield their ingredients have come from. So, well, that's not a good thing. <laughs> Local Trump's organic, I think, most of the time. That was kind of funny. So I'm curious to watch about that chocolate bar. I feel like I might bond <laughs> with that spirit. And your Fabulous. husband, perhaps, Probably. as well. <laughs> then you have one called Lila Pines for the Wolf by an Iraqi playwright called Hassan Abdul Razak. Tell us about Lila Pines for the oh, Wolf. Oh, yes. Well, one of the things that, you know, that's, that I, I have to, I, I teach beginning playwriting here at Mizzou, and one of my initial assignments for my beginning students is to take fairy tales and uh, to write a short play based on a fairy tale that they're familiar with. And one of the things that's true about fairy tales is that they, they are told over and over and over and over again because they reflect some core essential truth about the human experience that resonates with people. So uh, when you use a fairy tale to communicate an idea, you're actually able to bypass a lot of the filters because it gets right into, pe- into the core of who people are and the way we were raised. So it's a riff on the Little Red Riding Hood story. And in this case, the f- part of the fun of it is that the wolf actually represents nature. Right, a little red riding hood represents culture. So the conversation between the two of them is a conversation between culture and nature, which is essentially what, you know, the climate change issue is all about is this ongoing conversation between nature and culture. And the way this particular playwright Casey Lynch is our director who is directing this one. And the uh, we have a multicultural cast, we have a really really funny actor playing the wolf. So it's a really nice way of helping people understand the seriousness of the issue. And yet, of course, it's our intent as theater artists to make sure that they have a good time while they're doing it. So that's what that one's all about. It's a lot of fun to have um, some pushback against the tropes, too. Little Red Riding Hood ain't your grandma's. (laughs) (laughs) She's quite sassy. That's right. That's right. There are so many great sounding plays. So I'm, I'm curious to see how they all fit together and we know where the comedy is and how I feel at the end of it if I walk away feeling hopeful, which is unlikely. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think we really just, I mean, part of it is, our, I think what you've pointed out with our country, pe- people starting to pay attention in different ways um, with Greta's important work in our youth. I think what's important is that, that despair can get us absolutely nowhere along the same lines as not doing anything. Apathy and despair are not helping. The idea of what can we do, trying to focus on what can we do, could lead us somewhere. Um, And so I don't think lighting the way is just light at all. It's actually quite deep. You know, how can we get somewhere together? In that 2005 essay by Bill McKibben, he wrote, art, like religion, is one of the ways we digest what is happening to us, make sense out of it that proceeds to action. Otherwise, the only role left to us, noble, but also enraging in its impotence, is simply to pay witness. Absolutely. Who is that guy that's early Bill McKibben. Who is he? He is the founder of an organization called 350.org, and he is a, a radical environmentalist who for two decades has been saying, y'all need to wake up. And he spoke at Mizzou a couple of years ago, and he said, you know, we're way past changing out your light bulbs, way past that. You need to be out. And he looked at the audience and he said, I'm glad to see multiple generations here, but all of you older people here, you're the ones that need to be out there getting arrested. You're like, you know, you've had your life. Don't let the kids have a, a record. You go out there and be on the front lines. And it was absolutely, it was pretty All powerful. All right, <laughs> Oh yeah, he's awesome. So the play opens. The series opens next Wednesday, October yes. the sixteenth. Sixteenth. 
Yes, uh, Wednesday, the October 16th. And then it runs through the weekend. So there are multiple chances to see it. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, and you have matinees as well. Yes, matinee on Sunday at 2. Okay. And you can get tickets from theatre.missouri.edu. Um, sometimes the theatre does sell out, so I would definitely recommend people get tickets in advance. Yes, our Studio 4 is a beautiful theatre located in McKee Gymnasium, but has about 125 seats, so please get your tickets early. Thank you so much to my guest today, Dr. Heather Carver, Chair of the University of Missouri's Theatre Department and also Director of its Life and Literature Performance Series, and Andy Black, Associate Producer for this year's Climate Change Theatre Action and one of its featured playwrights. Thank you so much. Thank you, Diana. Thank you we so had much. such a good time hanging out with you. <laughs> You're listening to Speaking of the Arts at 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. And after a short break, I'll be joined by artists Tracy Icorn, Janet Flett and Vicky Yulgen to talk about the second annual Boone Plein Air. Back in a mo. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. In the early 19th century, French landscape painters mostly went to Italy to paint. The conservative French Academy believed artists should be trained in the neoclassical traditions of the Renaissance. Human anatomy or paintings that depicted tales of antiquity were to be encouraged, flora and fauna, ranked at the bottom of their endorsed genres. But in the early 19th century, a group of French painters influenced by the English painter John Constable and 17th century Dutch landscape artists started to leave their studios and head out to the forest of Fontainebleau just outside Paris to paint on plein air. Artists such as Theodore Rousseau, Jean-Francois Millet and Camille Corot were intoxicated by the sights and smells of nature and with their fellow nature painters of that period would eventually become known as the Barbizon School, named after the small hamlet of Barbizon located on the edge of the forest. By the mid-1800s, a second generation of painters was following in their early footsteps, painters who would become known as the Impressionists, such as Monet, and on our side of the Atlantic, American Impressionists such as Child Hassam from the Boston School. Landscape painting was no longer a second-class subject, but had taken its place in the salons and galleries across Europe. Bear in mind, too, that until 1841, when an American portrait painter called John Gough Rand invented the first collapsible tin tube, the oil painters had to carry their paints around in little squares made of pig bladders. Jean Renoir commented to his son once that without painting tubes, there would have been no Cézanne or Monet. Today, painting on plein air has a long tradition and plein air painting events take place across the United States, including next weekend in Boone County, when the second annual Boone plein air event is hosted by the Mid-Missouri Arts Alliance. And I'm delighted to welcome to the Speaking of the Arts studio, painters Tracy Icorn, Janet Flett and Vicky Yulgen to tell us more about the event and the challenges of painting on plein air. Welcome to the show, everybody. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks for having us. So the first question has to be what is the long range forecast for next weekend well we were just talking about that and we're like um cold and probably rainy when it gets into like this cycle it tends to keep that way so but plein air artists it's rain or shine it doesn't matter cold hot they are out there and they are painting. Miss Tracy, I just checked. 72 and beautiful. Yeah. Wonderful. I'm so excited. No rain on forecast. <laughs> good, good, good. I mean, late October is a challenging time of year to, to hold an event, I guess, outdoors. I mean, it could go either way. Yeah, because last year uh, it was it was nice, but then it was windy and it wet. turned out being cold and wet. But we still had a really good turnout last year. So. And, the, and the art was great. Yes. Even though it was 
not nice weather. <laughs> the art was beautiful. Do you recall how many pieces of art were turned in over that weekend? Oh gosh, I think I think it was about a hundred pieces. Each artist, we have about twenty-seven artists that are going to be participating this year. We had twenty-five last year, and each artist uh, submitted at least three pieces because they do. We have a competition that goes Friday, Saturday, and then we do a quick paint, um, and then we do like a themed paint. Um, so, oh, actually, they submitted four pieces. So, yeah, it was about a hundred pieces of artwork last year. So that's incredible that they can work that fast. I know it is amazing, and some of them actually had a whole lot more. And it's like, how do you do that? <laughs> it, it is really amazing to see somebody make three paintings in a day. I mean, I can't do that. Not that, any that, that someone you want to look wants at. to buy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it is, it's really remarkable to see somebody work at it and be that diligent about it and produce something that's really very wonderful. And sometimes it takes them less than an hour. Piece I sold once, I was on the side of a 95 degree gravel road painting hay bales, sold the piece, worked on it for about an hour. You never know. You just, it's almost better to do less than more which is kind of neat but so you have multiple venues that you have scouted out i mean a lot of plein air events are at the, the seaside or big mountains or you know colorado dramatic sceneries and boone county doesn't really have that much dramatic scenery but it is more like the origins of the fontainebleau forest it's just gentle countryside so what locations do you have for people uh we've got locations all over boone county um we've got the century farm which is actually that's Callaway County, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, but so it's just right across Cedar Creek there. The people that own that have allowed us to come in and it's got an old farmhouse and barns and things like that. Then you've got the river and there's always good scenery around the river. Hartsburg is another big draw with the, the Grand Hotel and just the little quaint houses and things like that. They did a lot of painting down there last year, so they'll probably end up doing it again this year. Um, and then just, you know, everywhere. We've got the Devil's Backbone, which is really cool if you want to take a trip. <laughs> you have to hike for that one. From my perspective on that, it's always, it's not really about the place. It's more about the feeling of what you get while you're there and trying to convey that feeling is more important than actually painting you want to paint what you see to a degree but at some point you have to let it evolve into something you feel about the place you can pull up to the strangest i've seen grain elevators look like amazing pieces of art Mm -hmm. people sometimes come Mm -hmm. up with the most incredible i don't know how they do it i wish i could figure it out some days but you know i'll have my day it may be this week or next weekend, you know, hopefully while we're competing, because I love the competition part of it. It drives you to complete paintings, which is really hard for an artist to do, I think, that doesn't do it all the time. That block, you have to get over right. that. So so people aren't going to be all gathered together. They are going to be spread out. You may not see the other people that you are competing against. They may be at another end of the county to where you are. Right, because we've got a map that we'll hand out to all the artists as they check in. And we've got GPS coordinates, and they just go do their thing. We do have one group paint, and that will be at the Century Farm. Um, and so they'll meet, that'll be Saturday, and they'll meet at the, the Grand, and then we'll kind of road trip over to that so everybody knows where they're going because we have to, the gates are locked, so we have to let everybody in, um, and then they'll group paint for however long and then come back. And then you have a quick 
Paint event. Is that the same one as the Pets? No, Quick Paint is actually Saturday night. And this is a fun one because this is a two-hour competition. And it's from 5.30 to, I think, dark, basically, 7.30-ish, something like that. And it's going to be at the Beckmeyer Winery there in Hartsburg. And that's a fun one because, I mean, you literally two hours and you've got to turn it in at a specific time and then there is an actual prize just for the quick paint so that'll be fun because we get to drink wine too then <laughs> <laughs> everyone's art looks better oh so much better become superstars we all do <laughs> janet tell us a little bit about the rules of the event are there do's and don'ts for the artists that they need to know about well first of all they have to bring their art in and have it stamped their paper or their canvas their canvas right and a lot of the artists will come in and they'll do that all on the first day they'll have all of their canvases stamped on the first day and they can uh, some people have finished up the work in their vehicles but they cannot take it home and you know work on it inside they have to they have to finish it that day and they have to arrive with a blank piece of paper so they couldn't have scouted out a location, done a quick draft, and then present that paper. It has to be completely blank when you're stamping the paper or canvas. Correct. Okay. Correct. So you can't cheat Correct. and do a little And most prep. of the people who are participating in these events have done it before. And so they know they know the rules. We have, we have a few people who will, it will be their first time. But most of the people know, know the do's and don'ts. So... <laughs> And one rule I can think of right off the top, no selling off the easel. Everything oh. has to go through the art center or the art group because we're they're paying out cash prizes and all the art will be available for sale. That's another big rule. Everything True. is available. True. But you can't sell off your easel. Theoretically you're supposed to only do what you've what you're doing for can you, if you are a viewer and you see something you really like, can you reserve it on the easel but then pay later? Well, probably not. We've not had this happen, but that's a good point. Uh, Because each day there's going to be a judge. We have a judge, Julie Wigan from uh, St. Louis, is coming in to do our judging. And every day they have to turn their work in to be judged for that particular purchase award. So if someone promises a viewer that they can have a piece of artwork and then it ends up getting judged and picked by whatever the purchase award is for that particular day um, the sponsor that does that there's going to be a conflict so yeah so they what what they are told the artists are told to to tell viewers if someone is interested in a piece is that we have a reception on Sunday from 4:30 to 6:30 that's open to the public and they can come in and purchase it at that time so a sponsor part of their deal is they pay pay for the, the award, but also that they will buy that piece of art. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. we have a purchase award for all the work turned in on Friday. We have another purchase award for all the work turned in on Saturday. We also have a purchase award. One of the themes this year is the river. So if it has the river content, there's a purchase award for that. And then there's a purchase award for the quick paint. So we have four purchase awards. Um, and so that's a guaranteed purchase for four. And then we also have what we call VIP. We have people that have promised by submitting a donation that they will come to the reception and they will choose a piece of artwork and purchase it. So we have nine guarantee purchases in addition to the purchase awards. What if it's nothing they like? Oh, surely not. <laughs> it does seem unlikely. Right? It's raising the question. Yeah. Gosh, I hope not. <laughs> They don't all paint like me. (laughs) 
so the most obvious difficulty of painting outside must be the light. Paintings take several hours, on the, usually, to complete, during which time the sun and the shadows have moved. Light quality is constantly changing. Early light is full of, you know, rich colour, and then by the middle of the day, everything's just kind of flat and ugly. So how do you deal with that? How do you deal with nature constantly changing its lighting rig around? Work very quickly. <laughs> it is one of those things that's one of the hardest parts of it. And I guess, theoretically, if I were starting something in the morning and I got too lost within the painting because it's very easy to overpaint your canvas. And I guess I could stop that day and start, go back the next morning and do it. Uh, what I'm going to be looking for during the morning time group theme, I'm kind of hoping we get down there early enough to see the fog because I know the location will probably have fog. Fog's kind of a neat thing to try to paint. And so there will probably be several people interested in that if we're down there in time. So, mm-hmm. but you're correct. It can be real interesting to try to remember because you can't take pictures. You almost have to, to work from photographs. No, you can't work yeah. from photographs. So you have to almost like block it in real fast, yeah. lay out, you know, okay, here's my shadows, here's my highlights or where the sun is coming from and kind of block it in real fast and then go back and start your detail work. Mm. Um, but it's, and then you look up and go, oh, well, it doesn't look anything like that. <laughs> I mean, the colors are changing. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I'll be inside. These guys might be outside doing the plein air, but I'm going to be inside. Oh, you're not painting, Janet. No, no, no. <laughs> no, not me. <laughs> oh. So I always think like the idea of being outside in nature with a sketchbook has such romantic connotations. The artist, lost in the moment, absorbed by the beauty of nature, at one with her world, is kind of an enticing image. And people who aren't artists think, you know, that's what it must be like. But I'm guessing that for a plein air newbie, it is nothing like that. The first Vicky, tell time, us about your first the first time, time I enticed Tracy to go with me to Callaway County to do the plein air event last year, <laughs> we took every medium known to man. We woman. had a car full. We had a carload <laughs> of everything, and that's the first thing you learn. You take way too much. And you might have to pack it for quite a ways, and you don't ever really know how far. Then last year's experience was in Hartsburg. It was like wanting to rain, kind of like it has been today. It's just, you don't know. It's cold. It's windy. Your easel might blow over. And if you're a pastelist, all your pastels are all over the ground. If you're just painting, you know, anything you're painting on can just blow away at the whim of wind. So you have to devise different ways to secure yourself. So, and then you want an umbrella and everyone laughs at me because I have um, a patio umbrella, you know, like your table out back, which is where mine is from. And I take my cast iron thing and take it with me everywhere I go. And I pack my own umbrella like that, but it has saved me a lot because it's large. So I can still work under it and be dry. (laughs) which is good, or cooler if it's really sunny. So, Tracy, how was your first time? I decided I'm not a plein air artist (laughs) after my first experience. The, The challenge of trying to complete something in a time frame was one because I, I don't work that fast. And then just the challenge of the bugs and the heat and the cold and the rain and everything like that. And it was just like, yeah, I might let other people do this. <laughs> the other thing about the quick paint last year was it was night, it got dark. And so you have people out there, it's cold, it's windy, and it's dark. So Some people have their lights that they brought, but a lot of people were working with flashlights. Mm -hmm. So 
but you're working on your canvas with flashlights. But I mean, you can't see any longer what it was you were painting. It was a carnival. So it, so. it was a carnival. So th- oh. there were lights on on some of what they were painting. I'm looking but... out over a dark river. Is <laughs> <laughs> there a tree over there? <laughs> So it's, it was quite challenging, quite challenging. So this year you're in a vineyard for the quick paint. Right. Is it a vineyard with lights? Actually, no, I don't believe they have lights. So again, mm-hmm. once it gets dark, then they're, they're, they'll bring out their lights. And the, Lorraine, I think, McFarlane, um, she was one that kind of helped us get the first one started because she's done tons of these and um, she has like a, a miner's light that she straps to her head <laughs> while she's doing but they do I mean they do specifically do night they call them nocturnes and so they do night paintings as well and yeah so that's probably what we're going to end up with the um, at the winery or at the vineyard because it will be dark by the time we get done or close to it There was a a lovely quote I found by Monet, and he said, try to forget what objects you have before you, a tree, a house, a field, or whatever. Merely think, here is a little square of blue, here an oblong of pink, here a streak of yellow, and paint it just as it looks to you, the exact colour and shape, until it gives you your own impression of the scene before you. Now, you mentioned it's very easy to overpaint. How do you, because you see so much, there's so much in front of you, how do you pare it down so that it it makes sense as a painting do you have to kind of concentrate on one or two things that really move you personally typically the most important part is setting up your composition because really 50 percent of your painting is prior composition if it doesn't look good to the viewer then it's not ever going to really get better no matter how well you paint it usually most of us probably have a certain palette of color that we'd like to work within so we're going to typically rely on our certain palette of color and not really have to worry about that we don't have to think about that so much but laying it in and getting all your darks laid in and then your lights are the biggest part of it i paint very quickly and very loose janet she's what we would consider a lot tighter more methodical it takes her time she's very intricate with her line and tracy you're kind of in between both of us in that I'm abstract. <laughs> yeah, she likes abstract. She does a great so job. You can't of that. go wrong with it. And she did not like the plein air, but she did very well. She really did. For our first time out, I thought mm. we did really well. Uh, but yes, it is. It's kind of a. You just have to go with it until it's hard to know when you're done. That's probably the most difficult part of the whole thing is saying, okay, when you're done is when you sign it. But signing your piece is the hardest part sometimes because you're like, am I done? Have I gone way too far? That's the reason why for me, the competition is more for myself. I'm not really worried about anybody else's because, you know, the prizes, that'd be great to win some. It's it's a real thrill to sell something. That's really thrilling because that means someone else appreciates your art. And But I have found the less intense I am on it, the better it is to me. So that put a little piece here, put a little piece of color there. I can understand where he was coming from with that. Mm-hmm. I wish I could apply it better, but I do understand that. Do you have tips for people start, who are coming to the competition? I mean, you, like you say, most people have done it before, but is there like a tip sheet on, you know, be careful not to overwork things, bring lights for night? I mean, one of the tips I keep seeing online is, you know, travel light. But from what you're saying, <laughs> that's not something that any of you practice. <laughs> travel heavy. I will be, I'm trying to get, I'll probably have like a backpack at this point. I'm only going to work in quite possibly either oil or acrylics this time. I usually have pastels on board with me, but I will shove something in a bag and just take it with me, especially if I'm going to have to walk for quite a distance. I won't take everything at that point because by the time you have an easel and paper towels and water or whatever you might need, you have to be 
leery of what all you're taking with you because not everywhere can we drag our wagon <laughs> even though i do take a wagon occasionally <laughs> tracy are you taking part this year or you're on the organizing side or you are competing i'm i'm not competing this year yeah i'm on the uh the committee for the organization of it and making sure everything runs smoothly and twice was enough yes twice was <laughs> enough yeah i'm just it's just not my thing i like i like my indoor painting <laughs> mm-hmm. janet you have done it one year or you haven't done it no i've just watched people do it and i know that it's not for me <laughs> <laughs> thank you <laughs> So, Vicki, you are an interior designer. You work for Johnston Paint and Decorating. So you spend your life surrounded by color swatches and the knowledge that light changes everything. So talk a little bit about, you know, you're used to working in a studio. You're used to how colors look. And you go outside and suddenly colors have a completely different personality and they breathe differently with each other. How do you overcome that? Is it just practice makes perfect? Are you surprised when you go out by how things change? Oh, no, because for me, when I go outside, it's probably more about the lights and the darks. It's not really the color, because you can make anything any color. As long as you have your lights and darks placed correctly, it will look really good. That's the biggest part of a painting, to make the movement look correct, I think, are the lights and the darks. The color is irrelevant, because as long as you have the value of the color correct, you're in good shape. It kind of works the same with interior design. I mean, when I go from room to room, there has to be a certain amount of flow with color. You know, I go low, and I go high, and I go in between, because I don't want it to be all dark 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 or light 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 typically Uh, and it comes inherently to me I don't know it's just like some people need a color wheel I have a color wheel that just spins in my head I just don't have to think about it which is why color mixing and things are very easy for me but it's just a practice practice science for me because I've just done it for so long I guess I don't have to think about that do you think you're one of those women that has that extra gene that you see extra colors that people don't see that's interesting i don't know how you would test for that but i read about that about six months ago and i found that quite interesting that there is that extra gene i think it's only women that have it uh-huh and it's and it's not that it, no i'm sorry mike men men don't get to have that gene nothing to do with us it's just the way nature intended it the perfect chromosomes over here <laughs> Um, but I often think that with painters. I often think that when I look at, we have an artist in Fulton called Jane Mudd. And Jane does these incredible portraits with so many colors in their face. And I remember watching a painter portrait one time. And I said, how do you see all those colors? And she said, how do you not? It's so <laughs> obvious to her that all these colors are in people's uh-huh. skin tones. Mm-hmm. But most of us don't see that. And that's part of that not having to think about it any longer. Because she's thinking of it as lights and darks. And she's just placing right. them. And that's what gives her work such expression such Mm -hmm. fun i mean it's always serendipitous looking you never see anything that looks stale and she has her techniques of doing it and that's a lot of practice and some inherent ability to see color but i i just i love that about her work too Mm -hmm. so i wonder maybe if you have that as well oh (laughs) i just took a little class, a short class with Jane last week, and I'm willing to say that no, but I would love to have it. Now, you are also a photographer, so does that help you with composition, do you think? Uh, yeah, I would say anytime you take pictures, I mean, any one of us that take pictures, we're aware of that for sure, because composition, yeah. if it doesn't look right to you, then it's probably not right. Mm-hmm. And I think most of us are all yeah. about that composition. Yeah, we're well, many years working in the photo industry, for me, has really helped with composition because that was, you know, I went to judgings and things like that, and that's the big thing that judges look at is, you know, how is the composition? It's got to be able to flow. You've got that, the golden triangle and, you know, all that good stuff. So, yeah, if, you, if your composition's off, you're, you're going to look at it and go, what's wrong with that face? 
painting. Yeah. <laughs> Abandon the work and start again. Exactly. <laughs> so you said you have 27 artists this year. You can have up to 30. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are still spots available. Is it too late to enter? We'll still take them. If they want to come and compete, we will. We have room for them. That's not a problem at all. So, and do yeah. you have to pay to enter? It's a $50 uh, entry fee, and that helps cover you know costs and things like that. So, yeah, but that's the only fee the artist has to pay. And do you have artists from far field that have come for this? Actually, we have someone coming from Virginia. I know, we're nationwide. (laughs) That was like, wow, I wonder how she, I can't wait to talk to her and find out how she found out about us, who she knows. She's got to know somebody that's participating. But we have artists from Virginia, Illinois, Iowa, and then, of course, Central Missouri. There is a large circuit of plein air artists. That's just what they do. A lot of retired people become plein air artists. And they, yeah, they just travel And they the go to different, and I'm sure we publicized our event in some magazine somewhere that she might have seen it. It may Possible. not have been a friend. It may have been a magazine. Mm-hmm. Right. So. so if people aren't painting but they want to attend, the event, I mean, you can wander around and just watch people paint if you right. can find them. Yes. But the big event is at the Hartsburg Grand Theater on Sunday evening. Right. From uh, 4.30 to 6.30, the reception is, we'll have the award ceremony about 5 o'clock, and then we're also doing a raffle that evening. We have donated work from Martha Daniels. This is a painting she did last year of the actual Hartsburg Grand. And then um, another artist that participated last week, our last year, Larry Seawick. He's from Carbondale, Illinois. Somewhere, Illinois. Anyway, his painting was chosen for one of the purchase awards, but the sponsor donated it back to the organization, and so we're raffling those two pieces off. We may have a couple more, just depending on some of the sponsors might donate their pieces back to the group. And all the artists have to have their work framed and wired. Yes. That's an extra challenge. That is an extra challenge. When you're against the clock. Yeah. We (laughs) we do supply, you know, uh, have supplies for them so that they can, uh, if they need to, they can frame and and wire their work and yeah because there's deadlines and if they don't meet the deadline the work doesn't go in final question does it cost anything to go to the event at the Hartsburg no it's it's free it's free okay My guests today have been artists Tracy Icon, Janet Flett, and Vicki Yulgen. The second annual Boone Plen Air painting event and exhibit takes place on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday next week. You can find out more and register to participate if you want to at midmissouriartsalliance.com. The event culminates with a public reception at the Hartsburg Grand Event Center on Sunday, the 20th of October at 4.30, at which all are welcome and there is no charge to be there. Thank you so much, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. You are listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 F. And before we hand the airwaves over to Terry Gross and Fresh Air, I have a list of arts events coming up that would like to find their way onto your calendars. So have your pencils ready. Tonight is opening night at Talking Horse Productions for the Lynn Nottage Comedy. By the way, meet Vera Stark. Showtimes are 7.30 tonight and tomorrow, plus it is a 2pm matinee on Sunday. Tickets are $15 and the show continues next weekend. In Macon, the Maples Rep Theatre Company is in the final weekend of their run of the Church Basement Ladies series, Rise Up, Oh Man. You can catch it tonight and tomorrow at 7.30, plus there are two 2 p.m. matinees tomorrow and also on Sunday. Tickets cost from $24. At Columbia College, there is a concert of songs from the Jane Froman Cabaret series. Tickets cost $10, with all proceeds going towards the Jane Froman Smith Memorial Scholarship. That show starts at 7 p.m. tonight and tomorrow night. And at the Blue Note, there is a Summerfest concert event with Interstellar Overdrive playing a Pink Floyd tribute on 9th Street with a three-hour-plus free concert that starts at 7 30. 
Tomorrow morning, actor Adam Bretsky is offering a workshop at Talking Horse Productions on cold reading auditions to teach actors what to expect at this style of audition and how best to stand out. The workshop is $10 and it runs from 10am till 12pm. At All Street Studios, it is second Saturday for kids for young artists aged 5 to 15. This Saturday's theme is Interspace and there is no cost to attend. And at the Down Gallery in Sedalia, a new art exhibit opens on Saturday called Particle and Wave, Paper Clay Illuminated, featuring 45 artists from across the globe who incorporate paper pulp and organic fibres into their clay. Sunday morning, Rose Park is hosting Mr. Benjamin and the Fun Band at 11am, a fundraising concert for the Atelier School of Creative Learning's Kids Scholarship Fund. The event is free, but it is a fundraiser, so donations are encouraged. Sunday afternoon, artists John Fennell, Jennifer Wiggs and Scott Patrick Myers will be giving a Q&A at the Mont Mini Gallery at the Boone History and Culture Centre about their artists' approach and their creative processes. The Q&A runs from 1 till 3, and that's free to attend. Sunday evening, Talking Horse Productions is holding auditions for their upcoming Starting Gate New Play Festival, which will feature six brand new 10-minute plays by three mid-Missouri playwrights. Interested thespians should head to Talking Horse at 6pm Sunday evening and roles are available for all genders, ethnicities and ages. Monday afternoon, there is an artist talk at the Bingham Gallery on the MU campus by Chicago-based fiber artist Vanessa Virouette of Puerto Rican descent, whose show is called Flagged, and that's currently on display in the gallery. That event runs from 4.30 till 6.30. This month's regular Hearing Voices, Seeing Visions artist talk is at Orr Street Studios on Tuesday evening and will feature artist Joy Wilson and poet Liana Petronella. Their talk starts at 7 and is free to attend. Meanwhile, across the way at Fretboard Coffee, at 7.15 on Tuesday evening, Audra Sergal and the students of the Sergal Music Studio perform in the Outside the Comfort Zone cabaret and there is no cost to attend. And the Blue Note Comedy Club presents Cody Co and Noel Miller, known for their Tiny Meat Gang podcast. The show starts at 8pm and tickets are $30. As we are once again on the cusp of National Novel Writing Month, coming up in November, the Columbia NaNoWriMo Writing Group and Daniel Boone Regional Library are hosting an event on Wednesday evening, and that's from 7 till 8pm, to help people get ready to write a 30-day novel. Next Wednesday is also opening night for the MU Theatre Department's 17th Annual Life and Literature Performance Series, this year featuring the Climate Change Theatre Action. The performances will start at 7.30 in the Studio 4 Black Box Theatre on Hit Street. Tickets are just $7. And at the Blue Note next Wednesday, the One Mike Artist Collective is raising funds for Missouri Jobs with Justice through an evening of poetry readings. The evening kicks off at 7pm and tickets are $5 on the door. Thursday afternoon, St. Louis-based artist Norlene Nosri, who was on last week's show, will be at the Columbia College's Hardwick Gallery to talk about her exhibit of service memories. Be there by three to hear Norlene talk. At the Missouri Theatre next Thursday, the We Always Swing Jazz Series is presenting an evening with the Branford Masalis Quartet. Tickets for the 7pm show cost from $20. And the Chris Young Raised on Country Tour touches down at Mizzou Arena at 7 p.m. next Thursday and if that floats your boat you can find tickets for the concert at Ticketmaster. You've been listening to Speaking of the Arts at 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia with me Diana Moxon and my good friend and sound engineer Mike Hagan. We'll be back next week with more news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. Stay arty Columbia.